Sunday mornings, if you're visiting with us, we're studying the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order, and we come this morning to Luke chapter 18. We'll pick things up in verse 1. And then he, that is Jesus, spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart, saying, There was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him, saying, Get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while. But afterward he said within himself, Though I do not fear God nor regard man, Yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. Then the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said. And shall God not avenge his own elect, who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes... Will he really find faith on the earth? Let's pray together. We love your word, Lord, and we love what it does inside of us. And we pray that as we study your word now, that it would not be in word only as it would come forth, but in demonstration of the Spirit and in power. We pray that you would bring the witness of your Holy Spirit to the truth of your word, Lord, as we study it and just so we can commune with you personally in your word this morning. And we ask for that work of your Holy Spirit in each one of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. This parable is kind of nice and it's a little different from a lot of the other parables and that the lesson that the parable is intended to teach is given to us right at the beginning. Some of the parables you go to, and I remember uh, hearing about one, I think it was a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary and he would tell his students, um, don't teach the parables until you've been in the ministry for ten years. Because sometimes uh, they're they're intended to be revelation. They're intended to be understood and to be taught. But sometimes it can take a little while to get clarity on what the point is of some of, of the different parables. But this one is really effortless for us. Jesus tells us the whole point of the parable so we don't have to guess at it. And one of the things that that tells me is that Whatever this parable is about, whatever the message or the point of the parable is, it is so important to Jesus that he doesn't want us to mistake it in any way or even lose any time in uh, trying to figure out what this particular parable uh, is about. And the point of the parable is there in verse 1, that men ought always to pray and not lose heart. And so... He gives us the meaning, and then he elaborates on the parable itself. Now, who is Jesus speaking to in this parable? Well, we're told right there in verse 1. He's talking to them. You know who them are? So whoever this them is, this is the people that he's talking to. And the them that he's talking to, delivers this parable to, are Christians. We know from chapter 17, there's an earlier chapter right here, verse 22, that he is continuing to speak uh, to the disciples, to Christians. And so this parable doesn't apply to everybody in the whole world. It applies very specifically to Christians. I think it's also very important to understand the context that Jesus gives this parable in. In fact, I think it's so important, we have no hope of understanding, really getting the richness of this passage without understanding the context that he he delivers it in here. In chapter 17, verses 20 through 37, which we looked at last week, Jesus has been speaking to the disciples regarding what will be the condition of the world in the last days, the days immediately 
uh, prior to Jesus' return. And he stated in that section of Scripture that the moral and the spiritual condition of the world in the last days would be as it was at the time of Noah. And at the time of Noah, it was a time in the world where the world was full of wickedness. It was full of sexual immorality. It was full of unnatural sexual practices. It was full from one end to the other with violence, men committing violent and criminal acts against one another. It was a time when God's standard of right and wrong in good and bad had been completely turned on its head. They had re completely abandoned God's definitions and, and uh, almost completely wiped them out. Only Noah and his family was left adhering to it. A time where evil was called good and good was called evil. That's how flip-flop things had, had become at that time. Jesus also stated that the social and the moral condition of the world would also be as it was in the days of Lot. And we know from the Bible that the single great sin of the period of Lot and was, was characterized by the men of Sodom and that was uh, the sin of homosexuality had become not only very widespread in practice but viewed as perfectly acceptable behavior by the world. It's also interesting that Paul, when he writes his second letter to Timothy, the book of 2 Timothy, he elaborates on what will be the social and the moral condition of the world in the last days. And sometimes you can walk into a church like this and you hear the preacher, I mean, you, somebody invited you, you're going to Mimi's for lunch or brunch or whatever afterwards, and... Uh, and what's this guy talking about? The last days, the end times. Or what kind of a church have you brought me into? The Bible teaches that human history is not going to go on indefinitely as it is right now. That Jesus is one day going to return and he's going to set things straight. And, and it's called a, a millennial reign or a thousand year reign of Christ. And ultimately that will give way to a new heavens and a new earth that is completely untainted by sin. There will be no effect of sin on any of that. I personally think we're living in what the Bible calls the last days. I think we're in that period of time uh, that is immediately prior to Jesus' return. I don't know the day. I don't know the hour. I don't know the week. I don't know the month. I don't know the year. God knows those things. And, uh, and so I'm, I'm not pinning it down to any point in time. And the reason that I believe that we are living in the last days, and interesting in the Bible... Every generation of Christians from the time of Jesus had the expectation of Jesus' return, that it could happen at any moment in time. And they were intended to, because that, that confidence that He could come at any time produces some very, very good things inside of us, even if He comes in the generation after we, that we give way to one day. But I believe that we're in, in the latter times simply because in the book of Ezekiel, God declares that one of the characteristics of the last days or the latter times would be the rebirth of the nation of Israel in the world. And we have seen that in our generation, 1948, that happened. So it's kind of got me on my tiptoes as if I needed anything else to, to get me excited about the return of, of the Lord. But Paul wrote about what would be the social and moral climate of the world in an ever-increasing measure when he wrote to Timothy and he said, but know this, that in the last days fierce times will come. Men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, a lot of uns in here, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, as just cold-blooded, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. So in the last days, uh, what will characterize the world will be a wholesale 
rejection of and departure from God's Word, His commandments, His definitions of right and wrong, good and bad, His definitions of morality and immorality, which in turn will lead to a degradation of society and the unraveling of society around the world. The Bible says that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. You do not abandon God's definitions of right and wrong and good and bad and replace them not only with your own, but with definitions that are polar opposites of God without it having an impact upon the world. And what ultimately it produces is a world you don't want to live in. No one wants to live in. But the arrogance and the pride of man, so addicted to sin, will be unwilling to even look at the bad fruit of their definitions and their decisions and be unwilling to turn from it, no matter how bad the consequences are. But this is what we see going on in some measure in the world uh, around us. Jesus declared that by and large the world's response to the degradation that uh, that sin brings to the human condition, that the uh, unraveling of society that it, it results, it comes as a result will be a collective yawn. No sackcloth, no ashes, no repentance, no godly sorrow, none of those things. The only thought will be for the next meal. What are we going to eat and what are we going to drink? The next business deal. What's the next material thing we're going to buy? What's the next big event that's going to happen in our life? Uh, what's the next wedding? Who's going to get married? What's the next feast we're going to go to? And living as if there is no God watching all of this. And there is no God that one day we're going to give an answer to. There is no judgment. Everything's just going to go on indefinitely uh, as it is. Now, that's the world that Jesus describes socially and morally uh, in the last days. So imagine that. I know it takes quite tremendous effort to try and imagine a world like that. But that's how he describes it. And as a result, in the last days... Jesus is saying that this world is not going to be an easy spiritual or moral environment for a follower of Jesus to live in. Now all of those things, it's one thing to read about a list like I read and then talk about Noah, talk about Lot, talk about the times. It's one thing to read those uh, as words on a page, even the pages of Scripture. It is another thing when those words begin to form in a reality before our very eyes. And then the consequences of that kind of sin in the world begin to reach into literally every human life and begin to affect the world from one end to the other. Again, it produces a world that nobody wants to live in. A, f a very fearsome uh, place. And that's why God said, in the last days, fierce or perilous times are, are going to come. And, and so when these things become not just words on a page, but these things become the dominant and the accepted moral and social standards in our world. And that's happening before our very eyes today. And when as Christians we are forced to watch a world needlessly grow more sinful and more wicked and more unstable as a result. And to not only watch it get worse from one generation to the next generation, but to watch this kind of thing at hyperspeed right now where things are literally getting worse by the year. And one of the things that can happen to us as Christians in that kind of a world is that it can simply overwhelm us. It's so much evil, it's so much wickedness, it's so much change in the wrong direction that it overwhelms us and in the wor words of Jesus here, it causes us to lose heart. 
Jesus recognized there in verse 1 that all of these social and moral characteristics of the world in the last days, that the temptation that it would produce for His people in that period in human history, where it would tempt us to lose heart. And thus this parable is a tremendous uh, encouragement to us, and it's intended to encourage us. Now, that losing heart that he talks about there in verse 1, it's two words in English, it's one word in the original language of the New Testament, which is Greek. And the word literally means to lose heart. It means to become discouraged. It means to become exhausted. It means to despair. It means to give up. And all of that is very, very real. Today in the, in the moral condition of our world as righteousness is on the defensive and as sin and wickedness is on the offensive, it is very easy to lose heart, to become overwhelmed by all of it, discouraged by all of it, to despair in the face of all of it, and then to be tempted to give up. Not to give up on Christ, but to give up on making a stand against it in the time in human history that God has called us to make a stand against these things. And one of the reasons that we can begin to lose heart and begin to feel this way is because standing against a flow of wickedness and a flow of ungodliness, it takes a toll on us. Whether we're conscious of it or not, it takes a toll on our mind, it takes a toll on our heart, our emotions. It takes a toll on our bodies physically. It takes a toll on us spiritually. And, and so that's why we feel what we feel. If you've ever been out into the Sierras or some kind of a place, you don't even have to go that far to find a river around here, do you? But you're on the bank of a river and a good flowing river, and uh, you say, I want to leave the shore here and walk out into the river a little bit. And as you walk out into the river, you begin to feel the pull of that flow immediately. And you begin to compensate for it. You begin to put your feet in, in a certain way. You face it. You go sideways. You begin to uh, make decisions for the ability to stand against that flow. If you decide it is not good enough for me to just stand against the flow of this river, but I want to walk upstream against the flow, and then you start to walk against that flow, you realize that you are moving upstream with, against considerable opposition. And we feel that physically. We feel all those physical things in a physical river. But the same thing is true spiritually. As the flow of the world, it morally and socially and spiritually, is away from God, then spiritually, if we want to walk closer to God, uh, walk in His direction, and it requires us to walk against the flow uh, of the direction of this world, then we begin to feel the resistance. And the stronger the flow gets away from God, morally in this world, the stronger that that gets, then the harder it is to stand against it and the more that it takes out of us to make progress against it. And so what happens to a person physically in a physical river is happening to us emotionally, mentally, and spiritually as Christians as the world is moving increasingly in the flow of ungodliness and away from God. It takes its toll upon us. That's just a, 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 a reality. And, and in the last days, Jesus is saying that the flow of that immoral, ungodly river is going to be very, very strong. And so it's going to take even a greater toll out of the generation that is there awaiting His return. And all of this is very, very true, isn't it? I mean... We can get tired of going against the flow. We can get tired of fighting against it. What Christian husband or wife that's married to someone that doesn't know the Lord yet, 
and isn't interested in any way, doesn't understand the flow they have to work against in that house. What parent trying to raise godly children in this world doesn't understand something about this flow and doesn't get tired of having to fight this dominant, powerful stream that is trying to conform our children. Who doesn't experience this on some level in their workplace or where we go to school? This is the kind of thing that is happening everywhere, even the kind of thing that we face in our service to the Lord. And sometimes we can be tempted to say, I'm so tired of fighting against all of this ungodliness. It's like a tidal wave. And I'm so tired of standing alone. I'm so tired of being the kook. I'm so tired of being the one that says no. I'm so tired of the one, being the one that makes the stand. I'm so tired of being a strange and peculiar person to everyone that's around me. I'm so tired of being the one that raises the objection to that being brought into the house or into the business or into the school or into the neighborhood or into life in general. And we get tired. And the reason we do get tired and, and, and in all of it, it's an indication that we're losing heart. And it even happens in ministry. Where in the last days, there'll be that tendency to look at all the work that's going into this. All the time, Lord. All of the effort. And what is there to show for it? The world isn't even noticing me. Isn't noticing the message. I mean, they're just hell-bent. The flow is so strong in that direction. Another reason that we can lose heart is that as we watch the world making one bad decision after another, one ungodly decision after another, the problem with all of that is that we have eyes to see the consequences of those decisions. We see the casualties. To be indwelt by the Holy Spirit as a Christian is one of the great blessings, and if you'll excuse me, one of the great cursings, of the Christian life. Now there's no comparison to the blessing side of it. But because God Almighty is in us in the person of the Holy Spirit, we have a clarity with which we are able to view this world, to view right and wrong as we look at the world and decision making and all in the, in the absolute black and white, beautifully black and white clarity of the Word of God, we possess opened eyes. We see things they don't see. We get things that anyone that's not born again does not get. And so when these decisions are made, we can look at them and our hearts can sink because we know where this goes. It goes nowhere at best, and at worst, it's just going to destroy a bunch of people and move the culture even further away from, from God. And so you go and you talk to someone with that kind of clarity that the Spirit and the Word of God gives. You say, how can you make that decision? Can't you see where that decision leads? Can't you see where the legitimizing of sin leads, the legalizing of sin leads? And they look at you like they can't even understand where you're coming from. And in some ways, they can't. We possess this wonderful, difficult thing in Christ. And it's called opened eyes. We see things for what they really are. I think in this vein of Old Testament prophet by the name of Jeremiah, who was called by God essentially to watch the destruction of his nation. How's that for a ministry? The destruction of his people in the southern kingdom of Judah. And for 40 years... Jeremiah cries out the Word of God to the Jews in southern Judah. And if 
We look at the record, the historical record from the Bible. There is not a record of one single convert in 40 years. And Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet in the Old Testament because he wept so regularly over what he could so clearly see by the Spirit of God and what the generation around him would not see and could not see because of their rejection of God and because of His ways. And you read the book of Jeremiah and you realize how he had to stay so vigilant against losing heart in his relationship with the Lord and his Christian ministry. This world is not an easy place to follow Jesus in. And Jesus is saying in the last days it will be harder still. But the nice thing to realize from our passage is that Jesus knows that. And there's something about knowing that he knows that makes an awful lot better. Lots of things better, doesn't it? And here he gives us a key to not losing heart as his disciples in that age. What are we to do instead of losing heart? He tells us there in verse 1. What's the alternative to losing heart? What's the safeguard against losing heart? The protection against losing heart. One word he says, prayer. Prayer. Prayer is like one of the simplest things in the whole wide world. All prayer is, is talking to God. Just telling Him, saying anything you want to just say. It's like you talk to a friend. Just telling Him anything, saying anything. The whole, that's all that is. It's just a it's just an ongoing conversation with God. Now, zillions of books have been written on prayer. So how could they write so many books on prayer if it's such a simple thing? It's a simple thing, but it is incredibly deep. What happens to a person in this area of prayer? It's amazing in the Scriptures. But prayer is very simple. It is just walking and talking with the Lord along life's narrow way. Anything we see, anything we experience, anything that happens, just being able to, in an instant, start to talk that through with God. I've done it in, you know, you get a little bit older and you don't care. You'll do it in line at the store. But, it, but, but the conversation becomes that, it's, it, it's, there's that kind of access. It's that, it can be that instantaneous in, in our lives. The spiritual and moral condition of the world in the last days is going to, Jesus says here, require regular and even constant conversation with God about what's going on around us and what's going on inside of us as a result of it. And what prayer and what talking with God produces in the life of a disciple is very, very important. One of the things it produces is a return of biblical perspective. Sometimes we get in a trial, we get in a difficulty, something's overwhelming, the stream's going so hard in another direction. And if we can find a good friend and just begin to talk to them about the situation, and they're outside of the situation, so they bring needed perspective. And they'll say, well, listen, Jim, you know, you, you might want to look at it this way. And then here and this, and you know, the Bible says, and boom, 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 like that. Pretty soon you walk away from them, and your whole perspective has changed as a result of, of the situation that you're in. Well, better than any friend is to be able to talk that way with the Lord. And God talks back. He really does. Now, that's another sermon. I don't have time to get into that. But he has a way of bringing his scriptures to our remembrance. He has a way of putting impressions on our heart. There's gifts of the Spirit. There's a lot of ways that he knows how to speak to us and to get through to us. The Bible talks about when people, fellowship, godly fellowship, talks about iron sharpening iron. We become sharper because of fellowship with one another as Christians, and our countenance has changed and improved as a result of that. You can't have any better iron sharpening iron experience than to talk with God. I cannot pray to God, engage in a conversation with Him, 
except that it's going to produce change in me because he brings his perspective back into my life, especially when I've lost heart. A losing of heart by a Christian in the middle of this madness is an indication that I've lost biblical perspective. So he knows how to bring me back to that. And so it it helps. This is one of the things that it accomplishes. Sometimes One of the problems, I suppose we're all like this in one degree or another, but sometimes you can have such a big deal going on in your life. This has happened to me a number of times. It's a fairly miserable experience. But the thing is so big and it's such a mess that when you try to think of a physical human being that you could explain it to, you can't pull anyone up in the Rolodex. How in the world can I explain this thing to somebody? Number one, who will take the time to listen to it? And then number two, how can I get them to understand how I feel, how I see, what this thing is doing to me, and then what we tend to do is then just to stuff it, a clam up, and just kind of live with it. But the beautiful thing about God is He lives inside of us. I don't have to explain how I feel. I don't have to tell them the history. I don't have to, all those things. I can just say, God, you know what this is doing to me. You know the whole history. You know what, what's happening in my life right now. And, he's, and He loves me and He loves you and He cares about us. And, and so He's right there instantly able to track with us in prayer. And, and it's a great advantage. One of the great things about a, a prayer, praying with the Lord is that you can be a going along doing something in life and, uh, and then something happens with the kids or something happens at work and uh, you just, you're mid-sentence with the Lord, you know, kind of praying something to Him. Lord, hold that thought. You go to take care of the kiddos, go to take care of this issue at work or whatever. Come back three hours later. You can start in mid-sentence and He's tracking with you. It's, it is, he is so efficient. And he, he understands what it is that's, that's happening when, when we're praying. And one of the things that, that happens when we do pray to him, when we begin to get overwhelmed and we lose heart, very often one of the things that the Lord will remind us of is, um, he doesn't talk like that. Um, that's me. I was doing my impersonation of me. But he'll say something, um, very often he'll say to me, especially after you listen to like two hours of talk radio or something or some other thing where the whole world is, uh, you know, you already know what it is, but you're going to bludgeon yourself with it. But, and I'm being facetious here. However it hits us, but how often the Lord will just say, um, no, he doesn't say um either. Let's, I want to be very, <laughs> want to be very respectful. He's not at a loss for words, is he? But he will remind me, Damien. I told you it would be like this in the last days. So why does it keep shocking you? Why do you keep losing heart over this? And, and it's interesting that, as Jesus said in Luke chapter 21, he said when, to the disciples, when these things begin to happen, and he's talking about all these things here, he said, look up, lift up your heads, because your redemption draws nigh. So he's always catching me saying, that's how... That's how. I, that's the grid I want you to put that stream through. That's what I want you to get out of what you see happening all around you in the world that causes your heart to sink. doesn't mean I, we stop ministering, stop serving the Lord, give up on the world, stop being salt and light. It doesn't mean any of those things. We keep doing it, but we recognize that what's happening here with all of these things in a biblical sense, is it makes us realize that the Lord is closer in His return than ever. And I want to be found watching and waiting and busy about His business when He does come. Another thing that prayer produces, it's important in the last days, it produces courage, it produces faith. When we talk things over with God, one of the things that happens is I realize, you know, if you ever... We're kind of in a rough and tumble situation growing up or whatever and you had like a, a big brother or you had an older uncle, you know, that wasn't quite as old as your parents, but it was, you know, there's something about knowing, hey, I'm not in the middle of this thing alone. And that's what happens when we pray to God is that there's that fresh realization, I'm not in this thing alone. I'm in, this, I'm in the middle of this whole thing uh, with God. 
in, in this situation. And I'm in the middle of, of, of the world that is 100% under control. He is sovereignly working it toward his, his end while man is, being, is legitimately held responsible for the decisions and the whole process of things. David wrote in Psalm 121 and about God being his helper. And that's what prayer does. It reminds us we're, in this place, we're not in this place without help. David says, I will lift up my eyes to the hills. From whence comes my help? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. That's good help. Talking with the Lord also lifts my eyes off of the problems which can just become completely dominating. And the temptation will be even greater in the last days because the problems will be so, they will just continue to become so much greater. And what happens is our vision moves from a heavenly vision, an eternal vision, a vision of how big our God is and how great our God is to how big these problems are and how big the mess is. And prayer, one of the things it does without us even realizing it's doing is it lifts our head. It lifts our head off of the condition of the world and it lifts our head to God. David put it this way in Psalm 3. He said, Lord, how they have increased to trouble me. Many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who say of me, there's no help for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory, and I love it, and the one who lifts my head. You can't pray without your head being lifted up. And that's one of the things that it does. Another thing that prayer does is it restores peace and quiet to our hearts. And in the craziness of the world in the last days, what it is morally and spiritually, it's going to be important that we do something that restores peace and, and quietness to our heart. And prayer does that. Philippians chapter 4, be anxious for nothing. Okay, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And here's the result of that prayer. And the peace of God, how peaceful is God? Pretty peaceful. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Jesus said, God said, you pray to me, and in all of that anxiousness and all the things of the world around you, you pray to me, and then in exchange for you casting all these things on me in prayer, I will exchange all your anxiety with my peace, and I will put my peace as a guard around your heart and around your mind. Sometimes people ask, and they say, well, how long is, uh, is my daily uh, prayer time with the Lord uh, supposed to be? And I understand the question completely. I like, I like formulas. I like schedules. I like times. I like this and this and this. I like all of that stuff. So I get the question completely. And, and so how, how long should the, that daily prayer time with the Lord be? Well, we need to keep talking things over with Him until I feel like my anxiousness or my loss of heart has been replaced with his peace and with faith. And that doesn't take the same time every day. Sometimes you say, well, 10 minutes a day in prayer, 15 minutes in a day, half hour, um, you know, an hour, two hours, 17 hours in prayer, whatever, who is you read these old saints. So how long do we pray? Sometimes it isn't just this and this because today isn't like yesterday. Yesterday, X amount of time was what it took to get up off of my knees or up out of that chair and have the sense that the peace of God is on my life in eternal perspective and I'm ready to tackle the day. And then today, it's three times that amount or four times that amount. It's very supernatural. And that is one of the things Jesus is saying here is our prayer life is going to need to become like that in the last days where it's directed in that way by the Holy Spirit, praying until this thing has happened in, in our life. So one, one day will require more time than another. As we see there in verse 7, this parable is intended to protect us from the temptation of thinking that our prayers aren't doing any good just because our prayers for the world 
aren't changing the ungodly direction of the world. Sometimes we think that. We pray for the world, we change, pray for repentance, we pray for a change of direction of the world. It doesn't happen, it doesn't happen, and then we begin to think that prayer isn't doing any good, and as soon as we begin to think that prayer isn't effective and it isn't powerful, then the next thing we know is we're not praying, and then the next thing we know we're losing heart on all fronts. But the interest, one of the interesting things about, about prayer, and, and that we have to be very careful here, is not to look at prayer as being successful or powerful solely on the basis of the change it produces in the world situation. One of the most important reasons for prayer is what it does inside of us and what it needs to do in our lives. You've heard the old saying, people say, prayer changes things. It really does. The first thing it changes, though, is it changes you and me. And in the last days... We need to be careful not to judge the effectiveness of our prayers based upon some physical change that they make or don't make in the world, but to realize that they are accomplishing something, something great, something important, because they are producing a needed change in us. A change of perspective, the regaining of eternal perspective, the nurturing of faith and boldness in our lives, the restoring of peace to our hearts. And that's a way that we have to judge our prayers and the effectiveness of prayer in the last days is what it's doing in us. Now Jesus instructs us that every temptation to lose heart, every temptation to despair and giving up fighting against the, the stream of, of the flow of ungodliness in the world. He's saying, this must be met with prayer. When Jesus said, men always ought to pray and not lose heart, he knows that things are going to become so spiritually difficult in the world that we will either do the one or the other. We will either pray or lose heart. Now, I try not to beat people up in sermons, and I have no interest in doing it now. But I do know the easiest place for the average Christian for me to lay tremendous guilt on any congregation that I would stand in front of is to begin to talk about the issue of prayer in our lives. But it's not constructive to guilt people into that. Nobody develops a consistent prayer life by getting beaten up. A prayer life is developed because of a great love for God. We enjoy His company and we enjoy the conversation. That's where consistent, long-term, effective prayer uh, happens. But the fact of the matter is that Jesus is saying in the last days, the body of Christ is going to split into two, two directions, two qualities of Christian life on the basis of this. Those who pray... Are, are going to be spared the losing heart in the middle of the mess. Those who do not pray will lose heart. On their way to heaven? Absolutely. Saved? Absolutely. But have completely lost perspective, lost their usefulness, the effectiveness that God wants to use them for in the world in the last days? Absolutely. So he can hardly speak of the importance of prayer in his people in the last days than he does here. An awful lot hinges uh, upon it. So Jesus is saying here, listen, in the last days we're going to need to talk a lot. In fact, the conversation you and I are going to need to have with one another in the last days is a conversation that is ongoing and constant. And I believe it. Otherwise we'll lose heart and we'll lose perspective. The parable itself in verses 2 through 5, and listen, you say, that's his introduction. Oh my, let's order pizzas. <laughs> I'll only be another minute or two. I told you the context was important, the whole thing here. They're running. I don't blame them. I'm just teasing. 
The parable in verses 2 through 5, he gives it in order to reveal the heart of God, the God that we pray to. There's only two people in the parable. There's a widow and there's a judge. In that old test, in, in, the, in that 2,000 years ago, that ancient culture, a widow was like uh, proverbial for being powerless, for being vulnerable. When you saw a woman in that, in that ancient culture, she was the picture of vulnerability and powerlessness. And so that's what she is. And what she, in this, she represents us as Christians in this world, especially in the last days. And this is the physical condition of many Christians in the world today, in the nations and cities that they live in, as they make a stand against ungodliness. Now, a wrong's been done against her, and she wants that wrong to be righted. And what this speaks of is the unjust persecution that Christians will face in the last days and the cry that will come out of their heart to God in prayer that He would bring justice to the situation and justice to the world. The judge, his characteristics are he had no fear for God, no great respect for people. He's absolutely heartless. And so in the natural realm, even a very powerful, very influential, very wealthy man would have a trouble moving the heart of this kind of a judge. This guy, Casey, he, you, can't, you can't move him. So, but in the passage we see, ultimately, the persistence of this widow's prayers prevails over the judge and he grants her her request and he gives the reason there in verse 5, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her. Lest... By her continual coming, she weary me. The word weary is beautiful in the original language. It means to give a black eye. He surrenders to her requests, having been beat in black and blue by her prayers. Now, the moral of the story is not that God is like this judge, and if he... You could, the way to get through to this God that we serve is you just got to beat Him up with prayer. You got to huff, you got to puff, you got to blow that house down. You got to pray and pray and pray until He gets so tired of hearing your voice that He gives you what you want. That's not the purpose of the parable. The whole purpose of the parable is to tell us that the God that we pray to is nothing like this judge but that if this woman will persevere in a court case with virtually no hope of success, then how much more should we persevere in our prayers for justice in the light of how loving and how caring and how gracious God is toward us? And that brings us to Jesus' applications in verses 6 through 8. Jesus said, in verse 7, in the beginning of verse 8, that he will answer the prayers of his people for righteousness to be reestablished in this world. He'll be faithful to avenge his people for the persecution that we experience for righteousness' sake. He is aware of it. He watches all of it. He will bring forth righteousness and justice into this world. Every single, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, prayer is one day going to be answered by the Lord in his return and the establishment of his kingdom in this world. He will answer those prayers. And so, he is saying, we need to continue to persevere in prayer. When he declares at the end of verse 8, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? The point that he's making is not will there be a Christian or not, you know, at the time of the rapture or that, that kind of thing. So he's talking about the point he's making is will he find people persevering in looking for his return when he comes? 
Will he find people standing against the flow of ungodliness in this world and even walking progressively against that flow? That's what he's, he's asking. And so, will he find people persevering or will all, everybody lose heart, despair, become overwhelmed by everything and just give up on, on, not on Christ again, but standing against the ungodliness? Nobody can answer that for anybody else. But Jesus, I think, has just wonderfully and lovingly told us here in this parable that a key for sustained faith and holy living in the moral darkness and the social and the spiritual darkness of the end of the age will be prayer. Persevering prayer, confident prayer. Jesus is saying, I know what's coming. I know what's coming. And you will lose heart unless we begin a conversation about what you're in the middle of and that that conversation is ongoing through your life and the age that I've called you to be a witness for me. And he knows that if we aren't, if we did not have him to bounce these things off of, to talk all these things through with, that we would lose heart. This is so important to know. The solution to losing heart, which all of us are tempted to do, is the importance of talking with God in prayer. Let's not despair as things go from bad to worse morally and spiritually in our world. Let's stay busy about God's business in this world and let's go deeper and deeper in our prayer life with the Lord. I love this parable because it's so simple and it's so practical and it's so needed. It's one thing to be in this world as a Christian and to begin to lose heart and to know what the solution is and that is time spent with God in prayer. It's another thing to be in this world and the mess that it is and the messier it's becoming and to begin to lose heart and not have the foggiest idea how to combat it or where to regain perspective. And because we've studied this passage together this morning, now we all know what to do when the temptation to lose heart and be overwhelmed and to give up in the marriage and raising the kids at the workplace, in school, in the neighborhood, at the family reunion. We know what to do in order to maintain a heart of confidence and faith in the midst of all that's happening around us, not only worldwide, but even within our personal circles. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, thank you for this.